So again, we're excited to be here today for tonight's Theology Lab. Uh, I have Adam, Augustine, and Jose Humphreys with us tonight. Um, thank you guys for being here. All right, thanks for having us. We're excited. Awesome. Uh, we are going to be talking a little bit tonight about some of the concepts in your book, Ecosystems of Jubilee. Um, both of you all have, I mean, incredible resumes of trying to help folks uh, wrestle with economic discipleship, uh, both from the pulpit and uh, through nonprofit spheres, through your work with uh, like larger organizations. And so uh, this book really is a game changer, I think, in a lot of ways. And I'm excited that we get to have you here today. Um, so, you know, we've talked a little bit um, so far in the Theology Lab about how do we wrestle with the history of the way that Christians have have wrestled with wealth um, in in the Bible or in um, throughout history? We've we've talked about how do we think about individual um, giving and and charity work, engagement like that. You guys come at this project from a very different perspective. Um, so, how does looking at our communities as ecosystems um, help address this feeling? Um, that I think we're all experiencing of, of being isolated, of being disconnected. Um, how do you think that this concept could help folks wrestle with this? Well, I think I'll jump in there. Uh, you know, when we thought about ecosystems, obviously it was this uh, reference to uh, a metaphor of like biomimicry, right? Uh, recognizing that when we say uh, ecosystems, it's this understanding that things are interconnected and interrelated in nature, and that's how God created uh, the creation to be, interconnected, interrelated. So uh, oftentimes when we think about now churches uh, within neighborhoods, we don't necessarily see the church as uh, something that's connected to a relational network or ecosystem in a neighborhood, embedded in that way. So uh, we thought that this metaphor would be very grounding for uh, the way that the church could see itself. Oftentimes, when we think about church or church planting, we think about, uh, you know, the church as a one-shop stop for the community. Hey, this is where people can get things and uh, get help, get healing, get support, get some teaching, get you fill in the blank. Uh, but then when we, we began to think about, like, like what if the church began to think of itself in a decentralized way, hence mm -hmm. part being a part of an ecosystem, then that would really inform the way that we actually look at our resources as well. You know, how is it that we now are managing resources within an ecosystem rather than a one-stop shop that is maybe isolated or maybe just transactional, dealing with uh, in transactional ways in its community and, and neighborhood. So, uh, yeah, that was that was just a metaphor that I felt that along with, of course, Sabbath jubilee, right, and and gleaning. We thought like, wow, there is just amazing uh, synergy between those those metaphors and concepts. Mm. Yeah, I think um, when Jose started unpacking this, um, we were used, I sort of, I think we started using the term ecosystem in almost an offhanded way, but then he immediately started thinking about uh, the way that forests work and the way that forests are interconnected, uh, often in unseen ways. And I remember these little aha moments along the along the way of writing together where, you know, we would be 
I mean, I'm, I'm not a scientist. So, so if anybody's like a, an actual botanist, please jump in. But I think, you know, there was this <laughs> moment where we learned that the conventional wisdom is that the tallest trees in the forest actually rob small and vulnerable plants in the forest from their nutrients. And, uh, but the conventional wisdom is wrong because the tall trees actually pull in the, the water and the sunlight down into their own root system, which becomes something that can be shared across. And, and the reason I bring that up is because um, I, I think the idea is, is, is so powerful because we live in an economic system that really doesn't function like that. You know, in some ways, upward mobility uh, pushes us towards isolation from others. And um, if, if I'm thinking about, and, and even sort of aspirationally, you know, sort of the aspirations of upward mobility in the American dream push us toward isolation, whereas in a forest ecosystem, the strongest, uh, quote unquote, most well-resourced uh, parts of the forest are there in a way that benefit every other, uh, every other plant in the in the in the forest and i think what would it what would it change about the way that i see myself in my own neighborhood if if resource was something that i i saw as a privilege to share i was i was privileged to be a part of this of an unseen network of exchange rather than allowing resource acquisition to drive me towards isolation and so that's like an example of how i think this metaphor then sort of plays out to Mm -hmm. imagining new ways of being in community mm -hmm. uh, that was really challenging for me really early on in the process. Mm -hmm. And I think even I'm wondering about that, like felt um, need for connection that, that we have as created beings, right? That we have that felt need for connection. And so we're acutely aware of our loneliness and our isolation. And yet we might not consider that chasing upward mobility um, is actually a thing that's that is causing some of that. As we've wrestled with, yeah, again, like individual uh, handlings of wealth resource, um, what is the best thing that I can do the most faithful way that I can follow Jesus? Um, one of the things that I think is interesting in your book is measuring the wholeness of a Christian economic engagement in part by uh, how much everyone is able to participate in the system, not just people who have uh, financial means or like time to spare, uh, but to say that the most financially poor and the most wealthy actually participate in um, a Christian economic system. Can you speak more to this about how it actually would offer healing and, and wholeness to everyone involved in that kind of system? Yeah, um, I can, I'll jump in here. Um... You know, I'll say I, I work at uh, the University of Notre Dame now, and and to be honest, in in my life up till when I worked at Notre Dame, I hadn't done a lot of engagement with much in the sort of Catholic theological world. And um, coming to Notre Dame, I've gotten to be exposed to the Catholic social tradition, and the the idea of participation is one of the the sort of hallmark values of of the Catholic social tradition in particular. And I guess I say that as a shout out to like, if you wanted to to read more about the notion and the sort of the, the idea of participation, there would be a, like a wealth of of things to to engage in that world. But one of the things that I think it, that it challenges me, this idea of participation, is that um, it immediately challenges like charity paradigms that maybe mm -hmm. even implicitly assume that folks on the margins or the economically vulnerable don't have anything to participate with 
Um, but the idea that um, each person has a way to contribute meaningfully, uniquely uh, to a community, gifts to bring, I guess, is one way that we could say it. And and um, if if that's a fundamental notion, and and there's whole segments of our communities that are not participating, if that's a local church community or the, the city or the community or the neighborhood that we live in, then then the whole community is suffering because there is a block in that exchange of resource mm-hmm. and gift. And that's really sort of that that metaphor back back and forth is that systems of exchange are are they're not just one one direction. Uh, mm-hmm. When we think about then this at an economic level, throughout the history of the United States, there are many ways in which the, the poor and economically vulnerable have been pushed to the side and excluded from participation uh, in ways that damage their future prospects, in ways that damage their ability to be resilient day to day, those sorts of things. And so at a fundamental level, if you have participation uh, as a value and a goal, then the more we can create communities where each person is a contributing member, then the the healthier that ecosystem becomes. So I guess that's sort of where um, where that idea comes from. And, and I think for, for me, as somebody who's not experienced much in the way of economic vulnerability, it consistently challenges any sort of presupposition that this person on the margins does not have a, a way to participate. You know, this is, this, I need to help them versus understanding that I, we can receive gifts from everyone in, uh, there's, there's so many ways to, to be able to be hospitable. There's so many ways to be able to be a gift bearer uh, in community that I think I, I miss that a lot. And so for me, participation is something that continually challenges those assumptions. Yeah. And I, I think we also underestimate the, uh, the power of the story of money. So mm-hmm. uh, if, if people do have means and you're coming in uh, into a relationship with folks who have less or people who are, are quote unquote on the margins or are, are impacted by poverty, uh, you know, money is that elephant in the room in many ways. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we have to continue to recognize that story, um, that class is a story and class is a thing. And, and even recognizing that your uh, social strata, your social class in life will de- often determine your uh, circle of friends and your circle of influence. So, uh, so, and that's, that's money. That's the power of that. So, you know, one of the things that I'd like to explore even further, even beyond the book is, uh, you know, what, what story have we assigned money and how is it that we can look at money uh, through a, through a prism of different approaches, meaning, for example, how can money be uh, an open door? How can money be uh, a means of transformation? How can money be uh, a bridge to resource people and uh, change the story from a story of lack to a story of dignity? Because that, that's, I think, you know, to me, when I think about it as someone who has uh, at one time been impacted by poverty, right, you know, and has straddled <laughs> different levels of, of uh, social status, uh, you know, you recognize that at hand is that matter of dignity. What is it that a person who's working three jobs and still ha- still can't make ends meet, still has to make decisions between uh, medicine and transportation, 
What about, how has the American dream uh, served them? We've told them, right? You got to work hard and you know what? You'll, you'll be able to, uh, you know, get what you need and also more than subsist. You'll be able to thrive and survive. So the, there are stories that are attached to all of those, uh, all of those specific spaces and places. And I think that uh, it's until we, we begin to interrogate our stories of money, which ultimately will interrogate our, our own personal relationship to money, then we won't see some of those barriers break down. Last thing I'll say that, you know, and it was uh, alluding to what Adam just mentioned right now, we have a valuation system in terms of the gifts that people bring. So if I bring the gift of money, but let's say someone else brings in the, the gift of uh, grassroots wisdom, or uh, they, they know about uh, the holy lineages of that community that have led to um, all kinds of uh, community development and uprising and, and social justice, then you know, how is it that we're evaluating one thing against the other? Mm. And I think that uh, that's a total ra radical revolution to even for funders. We I've, I've been talking to philanthropists who have been talking about decolonizing philanthropy for that matter. Like, mm. how do we change the relationship as philanthropists where we are not just transactional or just throwing money at a problem, but actually listening uh, to the grassroots, what's happening in the field. And now we're, we're, we're beginning to value that. And that takes a, that actually takes uh, maybe center stage or at least is equal par uh, on some level to, to the money that we're actually distributing that way. So uh, I, I think it's uh, economics at the end is, is about dignity and what is it that people can contribute and how it's valued. And all of that dignity comes out of the fact that every person is made in God's image and has something to bring of bearing God's image to the table, right? Like this is not, and I, I just, I think that framing for me is so important to say like, do I look at this person and say they have something to teach me about God? Um, right. So yeah. I have to- Just somebody showing up even, just showing up and, 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 and then us taking on the posture of listening and, and also learning to your point, mm -hmm. uh, because they're, they're an image bearer. Uh, they have inherent yeah. dignity. That's not something that, that, that we question. And that has value in and of mm -hmm. itself. For a lot of the folks in our context, the neighborhoods that they are a part of are largely suburban. Uh, and our churches uh, in the High Rock area, for the most part, are uh, commuter churches or churches where people are joining together from various different neighborhoods. Um, and so I'm I'm intrigued by this idea that you had of like the church playing its part in a neighborhood. And I'm also just struggling with what do we do when our churches are drawing folks from all over? Um, what does discipleship look like in that? How do people see themselves as a part of a church and also as a part of their neighborhood where, you know, they might be one of five families that live in that community from High Rock, but, uh, or whatever church they're coming from. I just, do you have any ideas of how people might be able to think about this for themselves or are we just you know doomed <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh man uh do you want me to jump in madam go for it yeah okay okay this is not an answer it's a response how's that <laughs> so uh when i think about uh just my own context in east harlem when i when i was uh pastoring. I planted a church, uh, co-founded a church about 16 years ago. And that, that was a dream that everybody, 100% of our folks be from the neighborhood. 
But as you know, New York mm -hmm. City is a very transient neighborhood. Uh, I'm sure, you know, Boston, some of the other uh, cities in that area or um, counties have some of the same challenges. And, you know, I, I began to realize that there was, uh, you know, not only a retention problem, but, uh, you know, uh, we, we had some of that, the challenges around stick to itness and, and what does it mean to be place based when uh, people are so mobile. And, and that's also a phenomenon in our country. It's not anything that's uh, isolated to one uh, specific context. And uh, so we had, I, I would say about 60% of our folks who are more neighborhood based or greater Harlem or even South Bronx, a couple of other boroughs where they were about 20 minutes from, from our neighborhood. And, and we did uh, often preach about what it meant to be a local expression in this local ecosystem. Like who, what are, uh, what what is the government root system looks like? What are the small businesses and and looking like? And how are they struggling? And what's happening with gentrification? So, that that became part of uh, the conversation on Sundays in order for people to begin to develop a, a more place based theology. Now, it wasn't lost to those who I had coming in from Jersey, <laughs> and and other parts of of the even the tri state area. The the hope would always be. When you go back to your neighborhood, don't don't just be someone who just hits the cot, you know, maybe eats some dinner, breakfast, and goes to work, and 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 there's nothing there. Don't don't pillage the village, so to speak. You know, just extract, mm -hmm. right? Talk. Don't just extract, but think about ways that you can be present to your neighborhood and to your neighbor. And what does the good neighboring look like? So anything from just uh, being present uh, with no agenda getting to know uh, neighborhoods, uh, history, uh, parks, uh, landmarks, uh, even being a part of a community board goes a long way where you, mm. you, you get to see what's going to be developed, how the neighborhood has changed, talk to some of the OGs in the neighborhood and, and see how, uh, uh, you know, get in touch with some of the neighborhood lament even, you know, what, how has this neighborhood suffered? Get in touch with the pathos of, of the neighborhood. Now, uh, of course, I'm talking about uh, a place like Harlem, which has a specific mm -hmm. history, which, which is a specific demographic that uh, mm -hmm. is at times stricken by poverty and gentrification. Now, when you're talking about the burbs, though, in which I think I should just kind of ease into that, that that's a little bit of a heavier lift. And uh, I've been asked this question many times, and I was even thinking about how to think, how how to respond to this, and I and I. And and I think I have more questions probably than responses. I, I could give you a whole list of mm. things you in my neighborhood, but I, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, I think people in in more whether it's a suburb or a gated community, as I was talking to someone in Puerto Rico the other who moved over there as an expat, uh, you know, what what can you do? And and I think I think mm. thinking about um, how how your current existence in some ways has uh, taken you out of proximity. Uh, from some of the suffering uh, on the ground and, and beginning to, to, to discern. And I think that's the key word here because we can't tell you how to mm -hmm. decide what to do. Yeah. What we're telling you here is really a question of discernment and formation, those two things. And asking yourself some tough questions. What is it, what is it that I do need to divest myself of in some ways in order to be in closer proximity to the to the pain, the extraction, and to the even yeah, just the injustices that are happening to my brothers and sisters not too far from me, 
And, and that's, a, that's both an individual challenge, but it's also a collective one as well, you know, as a church. Mm -hmm. how, how do we break down barriers of distance? Of how do we get out of the, the rut of the routine that keeps us on these grooves, on these tracks, and would allow us to uh, get uncomfortable? Last thing I'll say, I've said enough in there, you know, we often dismiss the rich young ruler, right? And that whole conversation was like, oh, that was too extreme. That was too radical. Here, here, here are two things that I draw from that story, and I continue to draw from that story. It, it, it gives me tension. It does, as someone who is no longer poor, right? It gives me tension. And you know what? I think Jesus would want me to live with that tension. You know what? Mm -hmm. I have enough to eat, but I'm also, I'm in tension about the fact that people in my old neighborhood don't have enough to eat. Don't, don't, mm -hmm. um, they don't have fresh, clean uh, running water. They don't. So I think that's one. And then uh, the second thing I would think about is, yeah, just divestment. It, you know, Jesus told him, sell everything you have. Now, you know, in whatever ways we decide to take that text, I think one of the questions that we're left with is like, how is it that I can uh, come from a place of being maybe more tight-fisted with my resources and begin to let go in a way that uh, others around me can have more? So I, I think uh, it's not, like I said, an, an answer, but it's a, definitely a response to uh, what yeah. are possibilities in terms of discernment and formation, Adam? Yeah, yeah, a couple of uh, hopefully brief thoughts here. One is the great opportunity of living in the suburbs is that um, the story of your city is inextricably not isolated. You cannot isolate the story of a suburb. It needs an herb in order to sub from it. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like you, you have to have a city, and so. Um, if I'm taking my ecosystem metaphor and applying it, um, whether or not the original spirit of suburbanization would want to admit it, the suburbs live within a broad ecosystem that includes larger cities and the other suburbs around mm. it. And I think that one of the challenges is that, as I said, the spirit of suburbanization has been to to, to separate from, uh, in, a, in a sort of in, in many cases, like an economically protectivist way uh, from the larger urban area. Uh, and so one, one thought is that if, if in fact suburbs are inextricably, the story of these suburbs uh, and the economic life of a suburb is, is absolutely wrapped up in the larger metro area, then, then there's work to be done of understanding that system and understanding that story. Um, suburbs don't arise out of value neutral uh, narratives. And so really understanding mm -hmm. that, coming to grips with the sort of cultural factors that that um, that drove that. The other thing that I would say is that um, in many cases, the suburban urban divide is a, a crystal clear example of that of that protectivist notion that I was talking about. That's something that happens at every level of the ecosystem. It's happening in my city right now. Uh, over a low barrier homeless intake center, uh, they're flooding uh, public gatherings to try and shut these things down because we, you know, they don't want this population of people moving in close or anything like that. Um, but the spirit of of protecting what is ours is often alive and well in in segments of of suburbs, and I don't mean that that's true for everyone. I just mean that sort of the spirit of of how the suburban movement was created. And so it's part of the DNA in many suburban contexts. 
Um, and so one thought would be to, if, if this is something that a church wants to reject, this protectivist notion, uh, get involved in your community, get involved at the like local political level and be the voice that sort of challenges that not in my backyard mentality that happens in so many of these communities, because uh, that is uh, something that is alive and well and really makes it very difficult to be meaningfully engaged in any sort of economic justice work. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's certainly one thing is to, to try and root that out in the place where you are. Um, though, though, you know, you should get thick skin if you want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And have to be probably vulnerable about your own, like Jose, you said your own, that own, that tension that you probably will feel in your own self. Right. Cause I think it's real easy to judge what other people are protecting if it's something that you don't hold dear, but we all have stuff that we are all protecting <laughs> and hoarding. Um, you spoke, um, about how we're formed by this notion of extraction. We're formed by extraction. Um, and you speak to Sabbath as being an antidote to uh, this concept. When I think about like, why do people feel the need to protect? Um, well, <laughs> it's it's because there's this sense that someone is always coming to take from you or something is always taking from you. Can you speak a little bit more about this extraction and Sabbath um, counterbalance? And then we'll take some questions from some of our guests uh in the audience i i uh i think i love first of all i love the way adam speaks on this but i'll touch on this as well uh you know when you think about uh sabbath and how the, the church in many ways has traditionally taught it uh we we either go from it's a day off to uh you know, I think the latest movement has been like, hey, I got a Sabbath now. I got to I got to take care of myself. And it becomes kind of a more of a self-care program. And, uh, you know, the 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 implications of Sabbath were broad sweeping because uh, it dealt with not only uh, an individual's uh, approach to work. Uh, it also dealt with land. Uh, it also dealt with uh, allowing it to go fallow. Uh, the restitution of, of debt. And uh, mm -hmm. so there was so much happening uh, when when God uh, commands the Israelites to honor and observe this day. And I, I, I wrestled with, when, in the writing of this book, when we were th thinking about the economic ethics and the Old Testament ethics and how we're, in, in many ways, it is what we do as theologians, right? We kind of have to uh, take this ancient wisdom without hyperimposing or superimposing and I guess we so we sort of do that <laughs> but just contextualizing it in a way that uh could really speak to our reality today and and I think what I had landed on was the what what is the essence of it and what is the wisdom that is timeless that could be used mm. for approaching how we look at rest and how we look at uh what is enough because I think that is part of the the, the question at hand here, uh, mm -hmm. you know, question that that brought up that were brought up in the book, like how much is enough, and how is it that we're also formed, uh, and, and yeah, let, let's 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 talk about it. I mean, how are we formed by capitalism? You know, the fact is, we're taught to mm -hmm. consume every day from the moment I pick up the the vial of toothpaste. It has a name brand on it, right? Everything is calling to us at the in uh, sending messages to spend. So. Uh, 
what what Sabbath does is it uh, challenges this this notion of extraction and it gives us an opportunity to uh, rely on something greater than the object itself than than whatever it is that we're grasping after. And I think that that to me is the value and the promise of it that it there's something formative about it. It's not just about absorb observing the time off or uh, maybe even living a little bit simply, but how does it actually mm -hmm. challenge uh, and orchestrate our desires in a different direction through the power of the spirit? And I think that that's, mm -hmm. that's where repentance comes in. That's when uh, divestment comes in. It's, it's recognizing that uh, the God who is commanding us to take a day off is also asking us to trust God with the provision that we'll need for our day. And that totally goes against the way that we look at economics nowadays. You know, they asked the Cherokee uh, Native American woman, you know, what, wh where's your pension plan? And, you know, she, and, and she, she responds, she pauses and, and says, uh, I don't have a pension plan, but if you were to ask me, you know what, my brother's my <laughs> pension plan, my, mm. my, my family, my, my, my tribe's my pension plan. There's this sense of collective care, which we, we, we would find it very difficult to imagine as Americans, maybe not so much uh, as a church, right? But as Americans that, uh, oh, wow, we're, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna contribute. We're going to infuse. And whatever it is that we have left, you know what? We're also gonna give out to those who are in need. So, uh, Sabbath is very, I think, formative when it comes to thinking about uh, our consumer ethic and our habits. And I think that there's opportunity for us to break through, break free from 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 this notion of grasping all the time. Yeah, one of the ways that I think that that Jose just said breaking free. One of the ways that I think that that consumer society locks us up is that we're not only like enslaved to consumption; we're also enslaved to production. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's mm -hmm. it's Sunday night. I got to be at work in, in 12 hours and, and I got a really big week and I've got to grind and I've got to make it happen. And I have deadlines. And I think that many of us, um, if, if we are working now or we've worked at one point in our lives, are probably um, familiar with the way that you feel a pressure to produce more and more and more and more. And and that like pressure to produce is extraction that that is how we become enslaved to extraction because we're taking from ourselves we're, mm -hmm. we're taking the profit potential from ourselves we are trying to produce more and more and more to meet the demands of whatever system we're a part of and i think i, I guess i've been thinking about this part a lot if we can if that's an experience that we know uh and have felt that like there has to be a way for this to be you know, there's got to be a way to say like enough is enough here. Like if we can like really connect with that feeling of how burdensome that is, that is a, a way, like a window for us to have some sense of experiential solidarity with folks who are exploited mm -hmm. economically. It's not the same thing. I'm not calling it apples to apples. It is to say that that we that is a window into, well, if this is what it feels like have to produce and produce and produce and produce what about people who are doing that and do not have options what about people that are doing mm -hmm. that and are and are actually locked into the kinds of systems 
that are just taking and taking and taking and taking um, much more than what they can healthily produce. Like that's, I, if I can say enough is enough in my own life, like surely I can say enough is enough in, in these communities of folks who are, who are exploited in that way. And I guess that's, that's what I would say Sabbath is. Sabbath is God's enough is enough. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I think this is an important part of this. Like when, when God rests, like the first Sabbath we encounter in the scriptural narrative is, is at the end of the first week of creation, you know, in, in, in the Genesis creation account, God is not likely resting because God's out of energy, you know, in, in my mind that there is, that it's not, God is not tired and so needs to recoup. I think what's being modeled for us in these early chapters of Genesis is that there is not a capacity limit to our production, but a moral limit to our production. Mm. That there is a limit to what ought to be extracted from our own capacity to produce. And that by saying no, uh, I, that, that, that Jose uses this idea of trust, that, that there is a world of abundance that does not require my production that can both be delighted in and participated in. Uh, and, and, and I think that that is, is the first part. To me, Sabbath is, is celebration of abundance. And the other way that scripture frames Sabbath is through the, the liberation narrative of slavery in Egypt. And so there is sort of a, a recuperation and a restoration component to it because we don't pay attention to this notion that the, that creation is abundant. We continue to extract. We extract from others. We exploit others. And so God says, I rescued you from a system of exploitation. And so I'm inviting you into this abundance as a way of reminding yourself that you have been set free. You know, the people were enslaved. They were literally building Pharaoh's storehouses for his wealth. If you want to like a really on the nose metaphor for extraction, that's what the people were doing in Egypt. And yeah. God says, I've liberated you from that. And yeah. Sabbath is a way to participate both restoratively and, and in like a celebratory way. And so those two things to me, when, then when I start to look at the ways in which people can be extracted from, and, 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 and this even gets all the way to, to creation itself. We take too much from the earth, you know, and, there's certain like uh, creation oriented and environmental layers to Sabbath that I think that, uh, you know, we didn't treat a lot of in the book, but I certainly think we, we can't ignore. Uh, and so I, I, I do think that that is, um, that is a way that Sabbath sort of trains us away from that. If we learn to celebrate in God's abundance and see ourselves and others restored, then that is a way of resisting and pushing back against those systems of extraction. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you both. Um, there's so much, y'all, you need to go read this book. There is so much that we did not touch on here. Um, I, I, I cannot recommend it uh, any more highly than I already have. Like it is just incredible. Um, we're going to take some questions from our audience. We have quite a few, so we'll see how many we can get through. Um, so, you know, see if you could answer them quickly. We'll, we'll see. Um, we have a question um, well, two possible questions around the practice of Jubilee. Um, do we have any hints as to how ancient Israel actually practiced the year of Jubilee that might inform our conversation? Um, and then just acknowledging that Israel was an agrarian society. And so how would practicing Jubilee 
in an agrarian society be different than for those of us who live in cities or uh, suburban settings? That's yeah. a great question. Um, and and the, the very short answer is, I don't think we have any scriptural evidence that Israel actually ever practiced the year of Jubilee. Uh, and mm. And I think that's heartbreaking. And also for me, it makes me want to double down on the point because uh, a big part of Jose and I's argument is that, yes, gleaning and Sabbath and Jubilee are laws, but they are also ways, if we were to think about it this way, this is God like outlining a, a kingdom society, right? I mean, they didn't use that language in the Old Testament, but this is like, this is God's ideal. This is God's intention for the way that community and society mm -hmm. should work. And so it's a system of economic redress. Uh, the fact that Israel, we don't have evidence, uh, would suggest that, yes, in fact, it's hard to go to the go to the extent that God would say in order to reset and recalibrate a system that can, you know, mm -hmm. get out of whack over time. Mm -hmm. um, and then the question for me, and, and this is, you know, Jose made this point earlier about like, how do you take something that's thousands of years old and reimagine it for today? And so if you're thinking about like background principles that come out from gleaning and Sabbath and from Jubilee, uh, we try to take pretty good care in the book to actually like boil it down to transferable notions because Jubilee deals with the question of ownership, right? If Sabbath mm -hmm. deals with the question of restoration and a response to extraction, uh, Jubilee is ultimately a question about ownership because it, the, mm -hmm. the nuance of Jubilee is about the return of land, right? And this is like the a primary way that people would build assets in an agrarian society is through the land that they own. And over a 50 year period, land gets increasingly concentrated. And so um, it is a question about who owns capital, who owns land, who owns uh, each individual's actual agency to operate in society. And so I think, I think if you want to then, then say, well, okay, well, now we can have lots of questions about how we extend asset ownership to the margins, to the social margins. There's lots of interesting things that we could do there that is an imagination of Jubilee in our, you know, like a, a reimagination of Jubilee in our current context. Uh, that to me is where, you know, I, I think we try to do that in the book, but I think that that's really the work of, of people in community is to say, how do we extend these these like core notions uh, to, to these edges of, of our communities? Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I mentioned in the book was that uh, I think the closest thing that I found in, in scriptures to some sort of observance of Jubilee was in, in the book of Nehemiah, when they were rebuilding the walls. And, and it turns out that some uh, some kinsmen were uh, repossessing land and, and selling their their own into into enslavement. And Nehemiah at one point addresses the people, has them uh, cancel the debt has them give back the land and then everybody goes to their work on the wall and and I, and, I, and what i really saw was just that there was there was a, the the essence of restitution this a reparation uh, and this idea of a holy reset and and i think that's why when we think about jubilee what are the holy resets that are possible in our day sometimes you know every now and again you might find legislation that deals with a holy reset or as the united methodist uh, movement has been showing uh, they're, they're part of the land back movement. So that was a larger movement that goes beyond denominations. But here it is that they have a history, right? That, that they, they've colluded in, in enslavement, they colluded 
uh, with the annexation of territory. And yet there was certain situations where they were able to give back the land to uh, native tribes and celebrate with them and be in relationship mm. with them. And I, and I think that that was beautiful because it went beyond being transactional. It was mm. also relational. Like we're going to be mm. in in this land with you, uh, which is beautiful, a, a beautiful form of reconciliation, if you will. And yet uh, we're also making this right. You know, we're turning the world mm. to right, which I think in many ways is the essence of, of that holy restart. Uh, because, uh, and I've said this before, uh, just left alone or left to, uh, you know, the winds of the movement of the wind, uh, systems will default in the direction uh, of those with privilege. And, mm. uh, and we see that with the accumulation of wealth, the disparities in wealth uh, we've, we've never seen before in, in, in the United States of America and in our globe. So uh, anytime there are moments to, to see some sort of reparation, some sort of restitution mm -hmm. that can lead to a celebration, to me, there's the possibility of saying, hey, that that kind of, hey, that, that, that might be a little glimpse of Jubilee there. And at the end of the day, mm -hmm. right, when, whenever we we deal uh, as Christians, as, as followers of Christ, we don't necessarily deal in, in cataclysmic events and miracles. Well, we deal with signs and wonders. Hey, there it is. Hey, that, that might be um, heaven breaking through, some of the fissures breaking through into our world as we know it. And I think that that's what we need to look out for. And then, and that's also what we can practice. This, this small little act of resistance in my neighborhood by shopping locally, uh, it, it, yeah, it's it's going against the tide of just going after big box development and supporting those who have means and and who are not involved in, in the local ecology. So uh, I, I for those of us who often feel that, oh, well, what difference does my effort and my action make? I say, hey, be like Jesus, deal, deal with signs and wonders, little glimpses of the kingdom. Mm. That's what we've been called. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What advice do you have about developing cross-class relationships in a natural way? We live in an economically mixed neighborhood, but it hasn't been easy getting to know our neighbors. Oof. Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> it's such a good question, though. And and I live in a now economically mixed neighborhood. And, and guess what? Uh, my wife and I, uh, we don't necessarily represent the the larger demographics. You know, when it comes to uh, the median income of East Harlem, uh, my wife's a professor, right? I'm a you know now I'm a consultant coach, still a reverend, <laughs> uh, but you know we recognize that there are certain uh, boundaries and walls that need to be uh, crossed over, and and I think that uh, one of the ways that I I have found is. Uh, you know, you know, I, I have an advantage because I, I do work with nonprofits and I interact with folks who, uh, you know, just really struggling economically. And then that's how I've been able to develop some of those uh, those connections. But I, I would just say that in in that venture of uh, breaking down those walls of hostility, because those are part of one of those walls of hostility, along with race and along with, you know, gender. Uh I, I think it's it's really just centering uh, the stories of the poor, uh, those who are economically challenged, and allowing ourselves to also be changed and intentioned by them. Because uh, you might also see that you'll be looking at your budget differently. And I think that's part of the, the, the ecological nature of relationships, that there is this exchange there. 
uh, they are giving you something. The question you have to ask yourself, uh, that you have to ask yourself is what are they giving you? What have you learned? Mm -hmm. And how is it changing you? Mm -hmm. I'm sort of struck by um, the way that like the people that sit at our tables are uh, like reflect the extent to which we live into this. I I'm thinking about even when Paul like critiques the church in Corinth for like desecrating the Lord's Supper, he, the desecration is that they've allowed the community to schism in socioeconomic ways where the rich are hanging out, potentially getting a little tipsy before the poor are off work and can even come to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. To me, that's a really like, is a really telling uh, notion because I think that um, like upward mobility creates like cultural barriers that um, that when we're trying to be in community with people who are who are not in the same sort of socioeconomic place as us, like that's a that is a like cultural barrier that we're asking someone to to cross that that maybe we're not even aware that we're asking them to do, uh, and mm -hmm. so I I actually think that we need to be aware, uh, and I guess I'm speaking for myself as somebody that like. I live in a really economically diverse neighborhood, but I would be on the 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 higher end of that socioeconomic spectrum. Like in in seeking to build community with people in my church or people in my neighborhood, if I don't understand the way that money creates this like cultural bubble around me, then I'm kind of ignorant. You know, like we would ne we would like we we teach cross cultural competency, but we don't really do that. Uh, we don't really teach people how to be socioeconomically culturally competent. Mm. Um, and like, understand how like our money like creates this uh, these like cultural trappings that we that might make people feel like they're in a foreign land or make us feel like we are in a foreign land. Uh, and having said all of that, I still remain committed to the notion that like the table is what makes or breaks our ability to live into the kinds of communities that God has in mind in giving us like community oriented mandates. You know, like if the church mm -hmm. is a community, kingdom of God is 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 a is a community, and I think that that's that is one of the primary ways in which, like, the kingdom of God grows is that is that communities are growing, like that, and so mm -hmm. I, I think it requires work. But like, who is at our table, and what do we need to do to like break down the socioeconomic barriers so that we can have economically diverse tables uh and i mean that as like as, as concretely as you can like put a table out in your yard and like how do we get to a place where we can be that kind of uh neighbor um to me those are things that i really i wrestle with quite a bit actually um mm -hmm. and so i think that's a fantastic question i'm i'm glad whoever asked it is wrestling with it and and like Jose said earlier like i i don't think there are like automatic answers but but certainly wrestling with it is part of it well, in your wrestling, guys, just a final word. What is giving you hope um, as you do this work and help others along the way? Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm a proponent of the small church. And, uh, you know, what I'm seeing is that there are a lot of uh, place-based expressions that are beginning to well up and and to be in close proximity. Uh, to the very things that we're talking about. And uh, I really do think, though, that that doesn't exclude the the larger church. Remember, we're saying ecosystem. And I'd love for, the, you know, High Rock and, and any churches with uh, 
with uh, blessings of abundance, right? To think about that, though, you know, so there, there'll be times when we can be directly connected to what's happening in the grassroots and, and maybe we'll be two degrees separated, but we'll, you will all be tethered, you know, we, we, you know, we'll be uh, that mycelium that, that runs underneath, underneath the ground and grabs the roots and, and nourishes them. So uh, I, I think that's the kind of collaboration that, that I'm seeing that uh, really excites me when, when the church begins to realize that it doesn't need to be the flagship. Might be a big church, but it doesn't need to be the flagship, but it can be actually a part of the fellowship of the neighborhood. And 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 think about ways uh, to even be invisible. Hey, how is it that we can start to do this stuff under the soil? People won't even know about it. But guess what? Our roots are in there. They're tangled in there somewhere. And and I, I believe the spirit is doing something that way. So that's the kind of collaboration, radical collaboration, that's going to take some divestment, some relationship. And to the question that was posed earlier, uh, yeah, uncomfortable conversations that don't feel like I have the same class sensibilities as this other person. Uh, but you know, are we willing to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of the gospel? <laughs> mm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think what's giving me hope is, um, I don't know, like when you when you put a book like this out and you you wonder how people will respond to it. And, and um, you know, Jose and I have had a number of conversations about like, you know, how, how, how would people respond? One of the things that's giving me hope is that, um, and something that was our hope, was that it produces a lot of generative conversations uh, with people. Uh, and that is because I genuinely believe that God wants people with means to encounter these ideas as an opportunity, um, as much as it is like a challenge and certainly an invitation to repentance in some ways. There are ready-made opportunities to jump in on the good thing that God has got going in the world. And I think that that is something that even in the stories that we tell in the book, the people that Jose and I are in relationship with that are doing these kinds of things on the ground and doing these really interesting, creative experiments, you know, now, now these stories are like three years older. And the things that we told that were sort of even in the nascent phase are now like growing and bearing fruit in their communities. And it's because people with creative ideas and really interesting skills wanted to leverage it in a way that was like resistant to the norms of our society but are still these like beautiful and compelling things and it turns out that you don't have to be a person of faith to find those things compelling because i think there is something mm -hmm. maybe in all of us that feels a little locked up by the current systems and when people start to challenge it in really creative and beautiful ways people are like i want to be a part of that thing over there to me that that is that's fun to talk about it's fun to even see from a distance these ways these little holy experiments grow and and grab and take root 